Jogcast. Error 404, will you comment not found? With Adam Avison, John Field, Liz Guzman, Stuart Harper, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison and Chris Wallace. The Jogcast, February 2013 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Joining me this month we have Chris Wallace and the recently doctored Liz Guzman. Congratulations, Liz. Thank you. <laughs> In the show this time, we talk to Dr. Ettore Caretti about magnetised outflows from the Milky Way. We find out what you can see in the night sky this month, and we round up some odds and ends from the world of astronomy. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Stuart Harper. This month in the news, bubble trouble for the Milky Way, solar snapshots, and synchronised dancing dwarfs. Something in the centre of the Milky Way is making a bit of a stir blowing out two bubbles of hot ionised gas which stretch out so far above and below the galaxy that together they are almost as large as the galactic diameter. The bubbles were first seen as a faint glow of x-rays in the direction of the galactic centre, but later were also seen in the gamma ray and radio parts of the spectrum. The current explanation for these bubbles comes from observations of other galaxies around which we also see large bubbles of hot gas being expelled. The driving force in these other galaxies originates from their central supermassive black hole, which feeds upon the dense environment of stars, gas and dust within some galaxies' cores, and then expelling the leftovers into intergalactic space. The Milky Way also has a supermassive black hole, however it long ago consumed most of the material near it, and therefore sits quiet and invisible in the direction of Sagittarius A. This means that the bubbles we see are not the product of a constantly fueled black hole engine, but the sputtering fumes from intermittent stars which stray too close to the event horizon. The latest set of observations of the Milky Way's bubbles comes from a team of researchers led by Ettore Carietti, who used the Parkes Observatory in Australia to map the entire southern sky at a frequency of 2.3 GHz. By observing at these low frequencies, the team were able to map the light being emitted from spiralling electrons as they followed the multitude of magnetic field lines that permeate the galaxy. Most of these magnetic field lines are produced by the galaxy itself, but others can be generated by highly energetic events such as supernovae, or, importantly for the Parkes researchers, by whatever is blowing out the bubbles from the galactic centre. The conclusions of the Parkes Observatory research flies in the face of general consensus for what in the galactic core is producing the Milky Way's bubbles. This is because they are able to trace the bubbles much more deeply into the centre of the galaxy than any other previous observations, and what they find is the bubbles do not appear to be closing to a point as would be expected if the Milky Way's supermassive black hole is to blame. Instead, the bubbles are still 700 light-years wide at the galactic centre. This happens to coincide with a recently discovered ring of highly dense star-forming gas. This is a region thought to form more stars on average than any other part of the Milky Way, and therefore there will be lots of stars dying, which means lots of supernova events. So many supernova events, in fact, that Carietti and his team think it is more than enough to be the engine blowing the Milky Way's bubbles. The sun's corona is a spectacle that many have seen as the striking white filaments of light during an eclipse's moment of totality. For solar physicists, though, the corona poses an unusual and long-standing problem for our understanding of the sun. It is far too hot. The temperature of the corona exceeds 1 million degrees Celsius, which is more like the temperatures at the sun's core than the much cooler photosphere, 
the layer we see daily in the sky, which is only a mere 5,500 degrees Celsius. An explanation for why the corona is so much hotter comes from the theory of magnetic reconnection. The theory proposes that tremendous amounts of energy can be injected into the corona when magnetic fields from the sun's surface stretch precariously out into space. Then, if two magnetic field lines get too close, they snap together and in the process release the surge of energy that powers the corona. The problem with the theory is a case of scale. As to definitely prove magnetic reconnection is the cause of the heating of the solar corona requires observing the sun's surface on scales of just 100 to 200 kilometers. The high-resolution coronal imager, known as HiC, is a pathfinder experiment to test if it is possible to build a space-based telescope with high enough resolution to observe the process of magnetic reconnection occurring above the sun's surface. HiC was launched on a small rocket to reach a suborbital height so that it would be in space for only five minutes. But in that time, it would take images of the sun with unprecedented levels of detail. The resolution of the previous experiments, such as the Solar Dynamics Observatory, could only see large-scale structures in the corona, but the HiC experiment sees so much detail that it can make out the tiny braids within these larger structures, which are perhaps evidence of magnetic reconnection. However, five minutes of observations of a small part of the Sun only gives a tiny, if intriguing, insight into the finer structures of the corona. This is the real success of the HiC experiment, since it has prove there is something there and that we can observe it, then the next logical step can be taken which is to launch a satellite with high seas optics which can orbit the sun, therefore allowing for continuous observations over a much longer time frame. And finally, large spiral galaxies like the Milky Way or Andromeda never form alone. They always come with an entourage of smaller dwarf galaxies which slowly orbit their hosts over billions of years and in many cases are slowly pulled apart as the larger galaxy pulls long strings of stars into its fold. As well as being smaller, dwarf galaxies are also usually much fainter because they contain only the very oldest stars, as after the first generation of stars began to die, they violently expelled all the gas and dust required for new stars in a series of supernovae. The observational consequences for this mean our only real comprehensive example for how dwarf galaxies behave come from our nearest neighbouring spiral galaxy, Andromeda. Unfortunately, the galactic waltz between Andromeda and 13 of its orbiting dwarf galaxies has been observed to be behaving in a way not expected by current galaxy formation theories. The astronomers using a telescope atop a dormant volcano, Moyokea, in on Hawaii, have noted that all 13 dwarf galaxies are orbiting Andromeda in the same direction and are all confined to a thin plane which is only a fraction of the thickness of Andromeda's disk. This is almost completely the opposite to the expected theory that dwarf galaxies have unique, randomly orientated orbits and the probability of this alignment occurring by chance is incredibly small. What is even more concerning is this adds to the already confusing question as to why we see less dwarf galaxies than we expect. By adding unexpected coherent structures to the older problem, it goes to show that something in our understanding of the story of dwarf galaxies is flawed. However, it is usually at times like this that researchers are most excited, as it shows there is still much left to discover. Thanks for that, Stuart. Next, we have Indy talking to Dr. Caretti about magnetized outflows from the Milky Way. 
So today we're with Dr. Ettore Caretti from CSIRO in Australia today. So you and your team have just published a paper about um, giant magnetic outflows in the Milky Way. Now, um, could you sort of explain what these are to our listeners and, uh, and talk about them for a bit? Uh, these um, giant outflows we discover are um, outflows, as, um, outflows of gas, of um, charged particles that are coming out from the center of our galaxy, the very center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And they lift up vertically with respect to the plane of our galaxy and goes up and up and up. And they reach far away about up to more or less the periphery of our galaxy, the outskirts of our galaxy. So it's something which is really huge. They are about 50,000 light years uh, long and it's about half the diameter of our galaxy. So this is the largest structure ever discovered in the galaxy beside the, the disk of our galaxy itself. So they are really big. Okay, great. All right, so we've got these big uh, outflows of gas coming out of the, the, the plane of the galaxy, so which is a disk, and it's quite flat. And um, so could you explain how, how you detected these, uh, how you observed them? Uh, we used the Parkes Radio Telescope down in Australia. So this has been detected in radio waves. So they are not visible, visible lights. And um, to do that, we need also to use a particular property of the, of the radio waves, the polarization. So in polarization, they are much more contrasting compared to other lights. And so this is what we did. The other thing is important is that one question that we have been always asked, or often asked in, the, in, the, in these days, has been why so huge structure has not been seen before. And this was because previous observations were on a too lower frequency or too high a frequency. At too lower frequency, these structures are hidden by a phenomenon called Faraday rotation that almost hide the signal from our galaxy. At high frequency, they are too weak, and so they were essentially undetected. So we observed at an intermediate frequency where we were able to uh, overcome both issues, and these unveil the signal from the galaxy. And that's, uh, that has been the reason why I've been able to observe these structures. Okay, so Faraday rotation basically obscures uh, the structure of the, the outflows. At, yeah, at they generate what is uh, called a sort of depolarization. So okay. the polarized signal in some way is cancelled out because of a tangle of the polarization angles. So this generates a cancellation of the signal along the line of sight. So when the frequency is too low, this effect is high, and this completely masks the signal from the galaxy. So we can see only structure which are very nearby, but everything which is behind a few, I would say, I would say hundreds or few kiloparsecs from us, is hidden, is, is completely cancelled out. So you call them magnetized outflows. How, what, what is the importance of, of the magnetic field in these, in these structures? The magnetic field has been very important because it allows us to uh, measure this, uh, this property of the, of the structure, but at the same time allow allows us also to measure the energy involved with the structure. This has been the first time we've been able to measure the entire, um, the entire energy involved with this phenomenon. And this has been impressive because uh, we detected uh, uh, an energy. What we measure has been an energy very high, impressively high. We are talking about uh, the energy. It corresponds to the energy of about one million exploding stars or supernovae. That's a lot. So this uh, is a massive amount of energy. And so... And this has been essentially possible because we have been able to measure the intensity of the magnetic field. Where does the large energy of these outflows come from, do you think? Thanks to our data, we have been able to understand what is the source of this energy. And these are star formation activity which is happening around the galactic center. 
So this activity happening is happening in a very compact region. We are talking about something which is 600 light years across, which is very, oh, 600 light years is a lot in uh, human terms, but is small compared to the size of these outflows. We are talking about something which is 50,000 light years. But in this compact area of the, of the, of the galaxy near to the galactic center, there is a lot of mass uh, available for star formation, and there is a lot of energy also because of the gravitational pull from the galactic center, from the supermassive black hole of the galactic center, which is in the galactic center. And so these... Um, this makes this area very highly productive in terms of star formation. So there are a lot of gas there, a lot of star formation, a lot of young and massive stars, and so there is a, an, a high number of supernova events that happen there. What these, gal- what these geysers, what these outflows are, here essentially is a gas which is expelled because of supernova episodes, and it's not just one or two episodes of supernova episodes, it's an ensemble of supernova episodes that, in gen- that will form these outflows and they will come, come out. So it's almost like a continuous explosion of stuff that's coming out of the centre yeah, of the galaxy. Not really continuous, but it is, yes, it is a sequence of explosions, sequence of yes, explosions. And, um, and, yeah, is, um, and the outflows is the sum of the activity, the sum of the effects of these explosions. Okay. And something which is interesting about these, uh, these, these flows is that they look really to winding around in such a way that um, it is related to the uh, material which is orbiting the, the galactic centre. And how do these outflows interact with the rest of the galaxy, if they do at all? Um, this, this, I think this is still under investigation because uh, um, what we have discovered now, we didn't know uh, before then discovered this. Uh, so what we have discovered now is that there is a massive amount of energy which is generated in, the, in this very center of our galaxy and which is spit out, out into the periphery of the galaxy. So... Until so far, we were thinking that the galactic halo was a quiet place. Now we know that it is injected with a massive amount of energy. And so I think that now all the interaction between the galaxy and its halo have to be rethought. So, and this for sure is subject of further investigation. So we have just discovered this one. So we have to understand now the implication on the effects on the rest of the galaxy. And the other important thing is that these outflows possess also uh, enormous magnetic energy and a strong magnetic field. And so it's, uh, it's long time that we know that the, galactic, the galaxy the, uh, possess a magnetic field, but it's been still a mystery so far how this magnetic field is generated. Now we have something which is a strong magnetic field, is a strong ma- with a massive magnetic energy, which is generated at the center of our galaxy and is sent out into, into the, into high into the halo, so at the periphery of the galaxy. So for sure there is a connection between this magnetic field, this massive energy, and the magnetic energy, and the galactic magnetic field. This connection has been not yet understood and have to be subject to further investigation. But we suspect that this structure will have a key role in generating and sustaining the magnetic field of our galaxy. Of course, we don't know yet. We will try to so understand uh, soon if this is really the case or not. Plenty more to investigate then. Um, and does, does this, um, is this sort of outflow phenomena, uh, phenomenon observed in, in other galaxies, for example, have we seen similar things, or is this a completely new thing? For a galaxy like ours, uh, uh, st- I would say a large but standard galaxy, so this, uh, uh, this has been the first time it's been observed. Similar uh, phenomena has been observed in star-burst galaxies, so galaxies with a, a very high rate of star formation, much higher than our galaxy. For example, 
something similar has been observed in AM82, where from the center of the galaxy is really seen something which is a conical structure that's come out and has been, uh, been observed both in uh, optical light, which is called H-alpha, that tells us about the presence of a hydrogen, and uh, also in radio emission has been observed also the magnetic field from this structure. But there's been observed like cones. Another galaxy where this has been observed is NGC 253. This is another starburst galaxy, so with uh, more activity than ours in terms of star formation. But in this case, there's been observed a cone, there's been observed something wrapping structure around the galaxy, like very similar to what we observe, uh, we observe for our galaxy with, with, uh, this, uh, with our results. Also in this, but in this case, the structure is much smaller. So it rises up from the galactic center only for about a few thousand uh, light years. So it's much smaller than what we observe for our galaxy. We don't know yet if this is smaller because simply there was not enough sensitivity to detect the same signal also at a higher elevation compared to the galactic plane of that galaxy, or simply because that is a smaller structure. But yes, so it has been observed also in other, in other galaxies, in other external galaxies. Okay. I'd like to say that um, there's always something unexpected in, in astronomy and science because, for example, even a such large structure, we're talking about 120 degrees in sky. So uh, if you look, if it would be visible in visible light, it would be something which is uh, uh, go across the sky for more than half away across the sky. So, uh, and this nice of, this the things nice of science, there is always something new to discover has been not seen before. And why this has been discovered? Simply because, simply, <laughs> what am I simply? Simply because we had the idea to explore a new space of parameters at a frequency and uh, uh, at a special, uh, using a property of the light not used before. And this uh, has allowed us to explore the galaxy in a, with a different perspective and show us that it was impossible to see from other perspectives. Anytime you explore and you do science, explore a new space of parameter, there's always great chances of something surprising, new discoveries, something surprising that you wouldn't expect at all. In relation to that, have there been any um, hints of this, these structures at different uh, frequencies? Or different yeah, these, these are the counterpart of something which was observed a couple of years ago in gamma ray, the so-called Fermi bubbles. The same structure was observed in uh, another, in other, um, other radiation, so in gamma rays, uh, thanks to the observation done with the NASA Space Telescope, gamma ray space telescope Fermi. They are more or less the same extension. So what we see is is, is the counterpart of this uh, radio of this gamma ray emission. The big difference is that with the data it was not possible to understand the entire energetics involved with these structures. So in gamma ray, it was possible to say, oh, they should be associated with the center of our galaxy because it was projected toward the center of our galaxy. Well, with our data, we can also estimate, have some information about the distance. So in our case, we can say these structures not only are projected toward the center of the galaxy, but are really at the distance of the center of the galaxy. We know that they are there, far away from us. That the things that without our data, it was impossible to disentangle between possible different explanations of the origin of the structure. It was still highly debated. It was uh, due to the activity jets from the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, so a sort of quasar-like outburst activity of the supermassive black hole of our galaxy, or it was generated by the star formation activity around the galactic center. So with our data, we, uh, we can tell that it is, is uh, uh, so our data supports strongly that it is due to star formation activity around the center of our galaxy. So what would the next step be with regards to observations of these, uh, these giant outflows? 
Uh, the next step will be to observe at higher frequency because uh, exactly the connection uh, on this on these lobes on these outflows, we have also discovered some substructure, interesting substructure, what uh, sort of ridge-like structure, very highly collimated, and they they extend from more or less the galactic center up high into these into these lobes. Our suspect is that this, or our idea, is that the structure are direct flow from individual superstellar clusters. So it's not from the general star formation happening around the galactic center, but from individual superstellar clusters which are orbiting the galactic center. We know these superstellar clusters are orbiting the galactic center are exactly in that position. So our idea is that these um, ridges are direct flow from the superstellar cluster, but we have not been able with our data to trace them back exactly down to the galactic center area, understanding what is the foot point of these ridges. This is because of still a bit of depolarization which is happening in very close, very close to the galactic center. And so what we want to do is to observe the structure at higher frequency and see if there is a real connection and see if there is a, we can identify the foot point of these um, ridges and see if there is really an individual it's the superstellar cluster that is emitting, is emanating them. We have a few candidates we want to explore and to see. Let's find out more detail. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Cretti, for your time. Thank you. And thank you for having given me the opportunity to explain the results. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else that we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends. So my odds and ends is about um, Aurora Borealis. So this is a website that gives you updates um, online. So it's in real time. It's pretty amazing because you can put your coordinates over where you are and it will give you what are the chances for you to observe an aurora and like the best season to go and to observe. So I can, I, we will put the links in the show notes. And it also has a lot of images from the sun, from Soho. And it's telling you if there's any particles coming out from the sun so you can see the auroras and where are the best parts. And um, it has all other links about solar corona and things like that. But it, it's a pretty... Uh, kind of neat website so we will put it and it says it has from um, updates from England, Wales, Ireland, Germany, Poland and the low countries Very cool So that's um, auroralive.eu but we will put the link in the show notes Exactly Did you put Manchester in? I haven't tried It will say (laughs) you'll never see an aurora it's too cloudy (laughs) I checked today and it just says yeah no aurora in an hour no aurora in the next three days so (laughs) yeah Oh well. My odds and end piece is on a rather ambitious plan by a new company called Deep Space Industries to mine nearby asteroids. They plan to go to asteroids and mine precious materials such as platinum and gold, and their first spacecraft is pretty ambitious to launched in 2014 to hunt for asteroids, and then in 2023 they plan to start mining asteroids. That's very ambitious that's like now really next yeah. year they start that's that's crazy <laughs> yeah it's ridiculous they have like some plans of either sending self-replicating robots to mine asteroids um, changing the orbit of an asteroid to so that it can come to a stable orbit around the earth and then mine it from a closer orbit okay wow or just to do the kind of obvious of go there get it and bring it back I like the third option because the first two sound like they could turn into really, really bad sci-fi scenarios. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I was thinking because when when we were talking about it, it was pretty. It's pretty much like like um, Avatar, right? We're just going to yeah. go <laughs> mine and get some gold or like or Noctanium. Noctanium, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so I did some some research into this, and NASA are 
launching their plan to, in 2016, they're going to retrieve 60 grams to 2 kilograms of asteroid. And that mission is costing $1 billion. Oh, wow. And Deep Space Industries plan to have a fleet of three Firefly ships, which will cost them $20 million. And they will extract on each... uh, trip they will extract 20 to 45 kilograms what so obviously this is completely different to current technology well yeah um the nasa mission doesn't sound cost effective but um, i guess the deep space industries are trying to be yeah and they are branching into sci-fi with firefly class uh, starships so (laughs) wow yeah wow cool that's really... It'd be pretty cool. It'd be pretty cool <laughs> if they do it in ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and mean, there's lots of there's lots of quite interesting uh, things on the internet about what happens when they, the when when gold market just drops because they bring so much gold back and oh, effectively yeah, double the amount of gold in the earth. Oh wow! And things like that. Uh, so people, they they they're talking about maybe like processing the gold there and putting it into microchips so that it won't be gold that you can sell on the market. Oh right. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, so they're they're talking about very very odd things, but it's well, it'd be interesting to see, wouldn't if something sets off next year, and then if that does, what happens in the next ten years? It's going to be really cool. Yeah, that'd be really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go mining if you want me to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my odd and end is the news that NASA has joined ESA's Dark Universe mission. So ESA for a long time has been talking about a mission called Euclid which is a space telescope that they uh, intend to launch in 2020 now. It's going to have a 1.2-metre diameter telescope and uh, scientific instruments which will allow it to map the shape, brightness and 3D distribution of over 2 billion galaxies um, with the intent of figuring out how dark matter and dark energy have affected the evolution of the universe as a whole. So it seems that NASA has come on as a smaller scale partner in ESA's uh, mission, but they are providing the detectors for the near-infrared instrument on the telescope, and also 40 scientists to become part of the Euclid Consortium. Um, The consortium already includes a thousand scientists from 13 European countries, so this is a big, big deal. I can't find any idea of how much this costs, because I always like to know how much these instruments cost, but I mean... Seeing as dark matter is thought to, and dark energy is thought to make up 95% of the mass of the universe, any mission should be worth it if it's going to help us figure out what's going on and what, what we're missing. What yeah, definitely. <laughs> when is it supposed to be launched? Did you 2020. 2020, okay. So three years before people go sky mining. Uh, yeah. Asteroid mining. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so from dark matter to matters in the dark sky, here's Ian Morrison with the Northern Night Sky. The Night Sky for February 2013. And we do have a rather lovely sky. After sunset, you'll see that beautiful trio, really, of constellations, Orion, Taurus, Gemini, towards the south. And they'll be gradually moving over to the southwest as the evening draws on. The three central stars of Orion that make up its belt act as very good pointers. Down to the lower left, you'll see the star Sirius, the brightest star in the northern hemisphere. Canis Majoris Alpha. If you have binoculars and just look a little few degrees below Sirius, just scan down below it, you'll come across a very pretty little open cluster called M41. Most of the stars in it are bluish, 
but there's one very nice red giant in the centre. It looks very pretty in the telescope. Coming upwards from Orion, you obviously come to Taurus, and that's looking particularly interesting at the moment. As well as the Hyades and Pleiades cluster, you also have an interloper, which is the planet Jupiter, and we'll come back to that later on. Higher up, above Orion and Taurus, we have the constellation of Auriga, with its bright star Capella. It lies along the plain of the Milky Way, and there are some very nice open clusters, M36, M37 and M38, that one can pick out in binoculars. And then over to the left is Gemini, the heavenly twins, with the bright stars Castor above and Pollux below. Down at the lower left of Castor's legs to the right, as seen in the sky, you'll actually see a rather nice open cluster called M35. There's one bright star down below Gemini, which is Procyon, one of only really two visible stars in Canis Minor. And over down to the left from Gemini, we have Cancer. It has a very nice, quite broad cluster called Pricipi, the Beehive Cluster, or M44. That's in the Messier catalogue. Below it is a rather less often observed cluster called M67. It's an open cluster, and that will appear in the highlights shortly. So as the evening draws on, Leo the Lion, with its bright star Regulus, is rising, and high above that we have Ursa Major, with the bright stars making the plough. With binoculars, have a look at the middle star of the three stars that make up its handle. The two stars there that you'll see, actually, are called Alcor and Mizar, and with the telescope, you'll see the brighter of the two, Mizar, is actually a double star itself. It's a very pretty little sight in a small telescope. So what about the planets? Well, it's no doubt that this month, the highlight for the third month in a row, actually, is the planet Jupiter, as I said in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. It's now high in the southern sky after sunset, crosses the meridian at about 7.45 at the beginning of February. By month's end, it will actually transit at sunset, so it'll be just west of south as darkness falls. And very nicely at the moment, Jupiter is high up in the ecliptic, about as high as it ever gets, so it has an elevation of over 60 degrees, as seen from the UK. It's shining at magnitude minus 2.5, and lies about 6 degrees to the upper right of the star Aldebaran, the eye of the bull. Now Jupiter has been moving towards the west, that's its retrograde motion. It actually ended that, so it's now going to start moving through February, very slowly eastwards, dropping its brightness very slightly to about minus 2.3. Ends up more or less where it started from, about 5 degrees to the upper right of Aldebaran. Its angular size is now dropping, but it's still around 40 arc seconds during the month. So even a small telescope will show plenty of detail, with the bright zones and darker bands crossing the disk, and up to four of the Galilean moons, visible as they weave their way around the giant planet. With a telescope at the right time, you might be able to pick out the great red spot. Saturn, on the other hand, is a morning object. It's lying in Libra. It rises at about 0100 UT as February begins, and by 1130 UT by month's end. So it transits before dawn at an elevation, sadly now, of only 25 degrees, because Saturn 
is now moving towards the lower part of the ecliptic, so its elevation will gradually get less over the next few years. The good news is that the rings have now opened up to just over 19 degrees to the line of sight. That's at their best for about six years. We're observing the southern hemisphere, and much of the northern hemisphere will be hidden by the rings. At the very beginning of February, Saturn is at about 90 degrees in angle from the Sun, and so you can actually see the shadow of the planet, which is side-lit on the rings. For the first half of the month, Saturn is moving very slowly towards the wide double star Alpha Libri. The separation drops to about 4.2 degrees on the 15th. But then Saturn starts its retrograde motion and therefore gradually begins to move westwards and moves away again. With a small scope, you should be able to spot Cassini's division and also the brightest of the satellites of Saturn, which is called Titan. Mercury is going to reach eastern elongation, that's when it's furthest away from the Sun in angle, and will actually provide us with our best evening view of the planet this year. As the month begins, it's shining at magnitude minus 1.1, but it'll still be very hard to spot in the twilight. What you perhaps need to do is to get to a site with a good low western horizon before the sun has set, and note where the sun sets. When it has set, it's then safe to use binoculars to sweep the sky to the left and somewhat above of where the sun has set, and if it's clear, you should pick up Mercury. Once found, and a little bit darker as the sun gets below the horizon, you should spot it with your unaided eye. A small telescope will show at the beginning of the month a 5.2 arc second disc, which actually is 95% illuminated. As the month progresses, the brightness actually falls, and the angular size, however, increases to about 9 arc seconds. Again, you won't really be able to spot any detail on the surface. Now, Mars has been low in the west after sunset for some months now. It's just moved into Aquarius, and at the beginning of the month, you have a chance of seeing it at about 6 degrees above the horizon in the southwest, let's say 45 minutes after sunset at the very beginning of the month. But by the end of February, it'll be lost in the sun's glare. It's shining with a magnitude of plus 1.2. Its angular size, however, is only 4 arc seconds which, given also its low elevation, means that you won't have a chance of seeing any surface markings on its salmon pink disc. Well, finally, Venus. Well, it's now passing behind the Sun. I suppose you might just spot it at the very beginning of February. It's only going to be three degrees above the horizon as the Sun sets, so it'll be hard to spot. But it's not really going to be visible again until towards the end of May and then it'll be in the evening sky rather than it has been in the morning sky. Well, what about the highlights for the month? I've actually talked about Jupiter. The great red spot is currently a pale shade of pink, but you should be able to see it as quite a large feature in the south equatorial belt. The features we see have been changing quite a bit over the last few years, but for a while the south equatorial belt vanished completely it's now returned to its normal wide state. In the night sky page on the Jodrellbank website, just Google night sky, I produce a little chart of the main features in Jupiter's atmosphere based on an image I took in December last year.
I've mentioned that Mercury is going to be quite good this month. And perhaps on February the 8th, we have a last chance of spotting Mars, as Mercury and Mars lie just 0.3 degrees apart, Mercury to the upper right of Mars. You'll need a good low western horizon, as I mentioned, and probably need to use binoculars, but don't use them until the sun has set. Well, we have something which is probably rather rare, and I think well worth having a look for, should it be clear. A near-Earth object called NEO 2012 DA14 is going to come so close to the Earth on the 15th, it will actually be within the orbits of the geostationary satellites. When it will pass just 31,000 kilometres above the Indian Ocean, it's quite close to the star Alioth, which is in the handle of the plough. We have a chance of seeing it with binoculars at around 7th magnitude initially. And again, I've given a chart to give you some idea of where to look. Let's hope it's clear, because I really would like to see that. That's pretty close. There'll be a very nice skyscape on the evening of February the 18th. Jupiter, as we've said, lying between the Hyades and the Pleiades cluster in Taurus, is joined with an eight-day-old moon over to the east. That should be quite pretty to see. Now, I mentioned M67 in Cancer. On the evening of the 23rd, the moon is going to occult that particular cluster. That's always a rather nice thing to watch. The occultation of the cluster itself starts at about 1950 UT and ends at about 2140 UT. That's if my Stellarium software works well. That evening, in fact, it also occults two stars, 50 Cancri, which is before, and 60 Cancri, which is afterwards. So that's actually quite interesting. Finally, on the morning of February the 25th, Saturn's rings occult an 11.5 magnitude star. So you would need a telescope to see this. It might just be glimpsed, that is the star, as it passes behind Cassini's division at about 0130 UT. I guess visually only if the seeing is very good, but it might actually show up using a webcam to image Saturn at that time. Later, at about 0245, it will actually emerge from behind the A-ring over to the left of Saturn. Now, normally, things actually go behind a planet on the left, eastern side, and come out on the western side. But this is the other way around, simply because by then, Saturn has started moving in retrograde. So Saturn's actually moving westwards rather than eastwards, as it normally does. And just to make the point that it was an unexpected occultation of a star by the rings of Uranus that led to their discovery in 1977. Astronomers were hoping to study the atmosphere of Uranus as the light from the star passed through the atmosphere. They set up their equipment well before the occultation and then got somewhat worried when the signal from the star disappeared completely. Well, happily it came back, and then later it actually partially disappeared several times, and they deduced the fact it was because the light from the star was passing through the rings then undiscovered of the planet Uranus. Well, good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. Now John Field tells us what you can see in the southern night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the February Jodcast coming to you from Catherine's Observatory. Our evening sky is still dominated by the planet Jupiter, along with the constellations of Orion, Canis Major and Taurus in our northern sky. 
Appearing as a bright white star, Jupiter continues to move in front of the distant stars that form the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Taurus is one of the zodiac constellations, the group of constellations that the ecliptic passes through. Over the year, the Sun moves in front of these constellations as the Earth completes its annual orbit around it. The bull's head appears as a V of stars with its two horns stretching towards our northern horizon. The red star Aldebaran, along with a V of stars called the Hyades, mark his head. The Pleiades mark the bull's back and can be found to the west of his head. Visible as a compact cluster of at least six stars, they make a fine sight in binoculars. In Greek mythology, Taurus is the embodiment of the great god Zeus. On the 18th of February, Jupiter and the moon will be close together in our evening sky. And for some parts of Australia, the moon will move in front of and cover Jupiter and its moons. This will make a stunning sight seen with the unaided eye or through binoculars or telescope. Gemini and Cancer are two of the other zodiac constellations in our summer sky. The bright stars Castor and Pollux mark the heads of the twins and they can be found in the north after sunset. Gemini lies on the eastern edge of the Milky Way and the region around these stars contains a number of faint and distant stars. Within one degree of Castor there are five faint galaxies that can be found using large telescopes. The December radiant of the Geminid meteor shower is also near to this star. Pollux, a bright of the two stars, is the 17th brightest star in our night sky. It is about 35 light years away from us. Nearby to Eta Geminorum is M35, an open star cluster. Under good conditions it can be seen with the unaided eye as a hazy star. Binoculars or wide-field telescope will be the best way to view this lovely cluster. Cancer the Crab is a fainter constellation of five stars and at the centre a naked eye cluster of stars for the Praesepi or the Beehive. This large and bright cluster appears as a nebula to the unaided eye and binoculars will reveal individual stars. Galileo viewed this cluster with his telescope in 1610, being the first human to see it as a cluster of stars recorded in 36. Orion the Hunter, our summer constellation, has a large number of bright stars and sights for binoculars and any size telescope. This bright grouping of stars dominates our summer evening sky and to us, southern hemisphere observers, hangs upside down. Orion's brightest stars, Rigel, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, along with the three stars of his belt, form an easily seen pattern in our evening sky. Well placed for viewing is the Orion Nebula, which can be found in the middle of Orion's sword. To the unaided eye, this nebula appears as a fuzzy star. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, they will reveal a bat-shaped cloud. A 100mm or greater telescope will reveal a number of stars in and around the nebula, including a tight group of four stars called the trapezium. Above the belt is right or the brightest star in Orion. It is the sixth brightest star in the night sky. The star is actually a triple star system about 860 light years away, and with a total luminosity of the group estimated to be 130,000 times that of the sun. To the east are Orion's two hunting companions, Canis Major the large, and below Canis Minor the smaller dog. The brightest star in our night sky, Sirius, marks the colour of Canis Major. For us, the dog is lying on his back with his feet up in the air. Sirius is 8.7 light years away from us, and about 26 times brighter than the sun. Below Canis Major is Procyon, and it marks the tail of Canis Minor. Just over a third of the way between Sirius and Procyon is a cluster of stars called M50, visible in binoculars. About halfway along the line from Procyon to Betelgeuse, binoculars reveal a rectangular cluster of stars embedded in a faint nebula called the Rosette. Almost overhead in the early evening is the second brightest star in the night sky, Canopus. From midnight, Saturn can be found rising in the east. Saturn will move through the constellation of Libra during 2013. 
Our autumn and winter months will see Saturn in our evening sky. Saturn rings are slowly tilting towards us, and this will lead to a better view of the rings later this year. If the predictions are correct, comet pen stars will be visible in our morning sky during mid to late February. It will be lonely each during twilight and may reach magnitude zero. This comet may be best viewed from the northern hemisphere after its closest approach to the sun in early March. We hope you have clear skies and during these summer nights take the opportunity to view some of the delights of our southern skies. Thanks for that, John. Now we get to the feedback section of the show, and to kick us off, we have an email from a teacher called Mrs. Ward, who tells us that one of her students, Ashley, found the Jogcast links when searching for space and science-related resource pages, and said that they found some great information that they were being included on their own website. And in return, they have sent us a great uh, teaching and outreach link um, a kid's guide to astronomy which we will be putting in the show notes so thank you very much for that Mrs Ward and Ashley From the forum Andrew's got in touch uh, he really enjoyed the piece on MUST, the radio telescope built from TV aerials, how cool is that? It is pretty cool pretty <laughs> Yeah. On Facebook we had nada but on Twitter Will T Morgan says that Jen Gupta from the Jodcast came on the BBC breakfast and he says that it was nicely done now, hands up around the table who was up in time to see Jen on the... Well, it's good that you break. cannot see our hands up. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, and thanks for the, all the retweets and the following Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with Jogcast, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On a forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash Jodcast. And don't forget, you can send us real posts because we haven't had any this month. Boo. Boo. Uh, the address is on the website. So that all that remains is to uh, thank Dr. Ettore Caretti for the interview. The editors were Adam Averson, Claire Bretherton, Sally Cooper, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The producer was Christina Smith. So until next time, Jodon. Bye.